Nehemiah chapter two, we talked last week when we kicked off this series about the priority of prayer, that before he could pursue this mission that the Lord had given him, he needed to pray. And we saw this great prayer that Nehemiah offered to the Lord. And this week I've entitled the sermon, When Vision Becomes Reality because he's been given this vision and he's prayed and the time has now finally come for it to come to reality. You know, this week, we're gonna talk about what it feels like and, and that moment when, when something that you've been hoping for and praying for and longing for finally comes to fruition. It finally comes to a reality. We're gonna talk about that theme of waiting this morning that we just sang about in that beautiful song. Maybe you know what it feels like to pray for something for a long time and finally see it come to fruition for whatever it might be in your life. It might've been when your kids were born, you know that, that feeling of you've waited and you've waited and you've waited and you've gone through nine months of pregnancy and finally the joyous occasion when this child comes into the world. Let me tell you about something like that in my life right now. Uh, I'm going to Los Portales after this. Yeah, that, you know, not necessarily an invitation. I don't know if they have that much seating, you know, but we're going and I've just been thinking all day about that moment when the sizzling plate comes out, that skillet and the chicken fajitas on there, like the, and it's just this incredible thing. And you take that first bite of chicken fajitas and you're just, man, this is what food was meant to taste like. And, you know, that moment of anticipation, maybe you have something even better that you're hoping for this morning, but here's the deal. Nehemiah had been praying and waiting and longing for months and he finally has this opportunity to talk to the king and he finally has an opportunity for this vision to come to pass. This is when vision becomes reality. So here's the goal this morning. I wanna spend the first half of this sermon simply walking through this chapter. We're gonna go through the whole chapter of Nehemiah 2. So we're just gonna walk through it tell the story, see what happened. And then we're gonna spend the second half of the sermon. And I wanna show you four things that this passage shows us about the way that God works in our lives. Because here's the main point. I believe that this passage shows us that we should boldly and wisely pursue our mission of developing authentic followers of Jesus Christ. We see in Nehemiah an example of pursuing the calling that God had given him with both wisdom and boldness. And I believe that we should emulate both of those in our lives. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. Nehemiah chapter two, it will start in verse one. Word of God says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, 
the queen sitting behind him. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate of the fortress of the temple and the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so, Father, we ask that your good hand would be upon us this morning as we study your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open up our minds and hearts to learn what you would have us learn this morning, that we might become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Verse one, in the month of Nisan, not the car, the month. Uh, so the month of Nisan in the ancient calendar would have been like March, April for us. Whereas if you look back at verse one, one, it happened in the month of Chislev that he got the news. That would have been like our December, okay? So it's been four months since he got the news about uh, the city being in ruins, I gather from this text that Nehemiah was probably at some sort of banquet or party that King Artaxerxes was having. And he says, when wine was before him, Nehemiah was smart enough to know when the best time to ask for something is. When wine was before the king, he comes to him and the king notices that he's sad. So he looks at him and he's like, why are you so sad? You're not sick. What's going on, Nehemiah? And the text says that Nehemiah was very much afraid. That's an understatement. In the Hebrew, there are two intensives before the word afraid. You could translate this literally. He was exceedingly, abundantly afraid. Nehemiah is not just slightly timid or shy. Guys, he's terrified. Why? I mean, there's a couple of different possibilities, but I think at the end of the day, he's terrified because he knows the consequences of what he's about to do. We saw last week from Ezra chapter four, this is the same king who had decreed that Jerusalem was not to be rebuilt and was biased against Jerusalem. He knows that the laws of the Medes and the Persians were inviolable. So he knew what the consequences could be for him asking the king to change his decree. So let's look at Nehemiah's response. He says, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah is a good politician. He's very tactful. He's very wise in the way that he speaks to the king. First of all, he doesn't mention Jerusalem. He knows it's a sore spot. What he does is he speaks to pull on his heartstrings and elicit his sympathy. You see, in Persian culture, there's a lot of respect for graves and for tombs. And so notice what he says, the city of my father's graves lies in ruins. So he goes to the king and he says this. The king, I think, kind of sees through this. So he goes, okay, what do you want? He says, what are you requesting? And I love this. It then just says in passing, Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. You ever done that? Like mid-conversation with someone? You're in the middle of a conversation, someone's talking to you and you're looking at them, you're smiling, you're nodding. They think you're listening, but really in your head, you're like, Lord, help me. You're praying, God, give me the words. Give me the wisdom. Let me know what I can say here that I can glorify you. That's what he's doing. He's praying without ceasing. And so what's his request? 
He asks to be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And he gave him a time frame and all of that. And the king grants his request, the text tells him. He says he can go back. But Nehemiah, I already mentioned he's a good politician. Here's another example of that. He gets the king to say yes before he asks for the stuff. He kind of gets a blank check. He says, all right, I'm gonna go. And then he gives him his grocery list in verses seven and eight. He said, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Guys, this encounter was not random. This was pre-planned, I'm convinced. Because he came to the king knowing exactly what he needed. I need letters to these governors so that I can pass through their territory. I need such and such number of beams. I need, these are the places I'm gonna build. I think Nehemiah had this whole thing planned out and he comes to the king with this request because he knows what he needs. I was wondering whether I should say this or not, but I couldn't resist uh, because I'm me. So notice where the supplies are coming from. He said, give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. So who's paying for this building project? The king. He kind of slips that in at the end. It's almost as if Nehemiah is gonna go back to Jerusalem and what's he gonna tell the Israelites? We're gonna build a wall and Persia's gonna pay for it. <laughs> but here's the deal. Why was Nehemiah successful? At the end of the day, was he successful because of his tact, because of his negotiating ability? because he knew how to kind of manipulate the king. No, he tells us why in verse eight, the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. He recognized the hand of God in his life. He's saying it is God's blessing. It is God's favor that brought him to this point. That's why he was successful. So let's keep going in this chapter in verse nine. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, a police escort. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Nehemiah shows up, he's got an army with him. He gives them his letters and he encounters two guys, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. And you're gonna hear a lot more from these guys throughout the course of this, uh, throughout the course of this book. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna do a whole sermon that's kind of focused on the opposition that Nehemiah faced. They were greatly displeased that Nehemiah had come. And on a surface level, they were just jealous they didn't want a rival for their influence in the region, but I think there's something even deeper and more theological than that. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Sanballat was a Horonite. Horon was a city in Moab. You know your Old Testament, you'll know that both Moab and Ammon were ancient enemies of Israel at almost every turn. It goes all the way back to Abraham and Lot. You can read about kind of the disturbing origin story of Moab and Ammon in Genesis chapter 19. But from that point forward, from the Exodus out of Egypt onward, Moab and Ammon were constantly a thorn in Israel's side. They were an enemy and here they are even again. So let's keep rolling in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose at the night and found a few men with me. I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into heart 
to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Nehemiah makes it back to Jerusalem. This is a 1500 mile journey. And before he rallies the people to the mission, he spends three days by night so that no one will know what he's doing, inspecting Jerusalem. He goes around and he surveys the gates and he surveys the walls to make a plan for what's needed. You know, Nehemiah is often known for, and rightly so, a great example of leadership. This is one of the best leaders in the Bible. And we would do well if you're in a position of leadership, whether that be in your home or in your workplace, or even here at the church, to learn from Nehemiah's life, several different leadership principles. And here's one of them. Good leaders and wise leaders take the time to patiently and accurately assess a situation before acting too hastily. But we're about to see his leadership on full display in verses 17 and 18. Look at this with me. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the the good work. Nehemiah is now ready to communicate this vision to the people. And notice how he does it. Listen to a few things. First of all, he begins by acknowledging reality. He acknowledges reality. He doesn't sugarcoat the situation. He doesn't people please, tell them what they wanna hear. He tells them straight up, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He tells them, this is the situation that we're in. So he acknowledges reality, but next he identifies with the people. Listen to that verse again. You see the trouble that we are in, that we are in, all of us. He doesn't stand back and point and say, look at this mess you guys are in. Even though he's lived in Persia his whole life and has this influential position in the Persian government, he is identifying with the suffering of his people. Next, he motivates the people to action. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He motivates them to action, giving them a mission and a purpose. And then finally, Nehemiah turns into a preacher. He encourages them in the Lord. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. He told them about what God had done in order to encourage them in their faith. The last two verses of this chapter say this, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. They get back and they're starting to build and they're being harassed by the regional governors 
who are jealous of their position and their favor with the king. They even accuse them of rebellion. Are you rebelling against the king? Ironically enough, they're doing what the king had told them to do. And they accuse them of rebellion. But I want you to notice what Nehemiah says and even more so what he does not say. Nehemiah does not rest on the king's authority though he could have. He didn't pull out his letter and be like, well, actually I have this letter that says I can do this. He could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't puff out his chest and lean into his own authority. I do what I want. I'm Nehemiah. I wanna build this wall. I'm the boss. That's the way it is. You know, he could have pulled the Ron Swanson move when he pulled out the permit, when they asked him for a permit and it says, I do what I want. That's not what he does. Instead, he leans on God's authority. He said, I'm here because this is what God has called me to do. He said, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He trusts in God's authority and in God's calling. And that's what motivates him to act. So you note takers are probably going crazy right now. You're like, Pastor Nate, you know, you've been preaching for 20 minutes and you haven't done one fill in the blank yet. We're getting there, okay? We've walked through the story. We've seen what it means. And now I want to transition to asking the question, how can this story that happened 2,500 years ago make a difference in our lives today as followers of Christ? I wanna show you four ways that this story shows that God is at work in our lives. First of all, God is at work in our waiting. God is at work in our waiting on him. As I've already mentioned, and I wanna emphasize this because I think it's really significant, four months passed from Nehemiah's receiving the bad news about Jerusalem that broke his heart and caused him to mourn and fast. And then this conversation with the king, that should not be quickly overlooked. I don't think it is an overstatement to say that maybe the book of Nehemiah doesn't happen without those four months. What do you mean, Pastor Nate? Here's what I mean. God uses seasons of waiting in our lives to work in circumstances that we can't see and more importantly, to work in us, to strengthen our faith, to teach us to rely on him, to teach us to depend on him. We don't know what God was up to in the background in those four months that the book doesn't tell us about. Is it possible that he was softening the king's heart and Nehemiah didn't even know it? After all, doesn't Proverbs 21.1 say, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will? Is it possible that the Lord was using these four months to deepen Nehemiah's faith? Is it possible that without those four months of prayer and mourning and fasting, that he would not have been spiritually prepared to lead this people on this mission? Ultimately, we don't know because the text doesn't tell us. This isn't Pastor Nate guessing. But here's what I do know. And this is what I wanna emphasize this morning. God is at work in the seasons of waiting in our lives. And when you are waiting on the Lord, you are not waiting on God to start working in your life. He's already working. He's working in the season of waiting in your life, even if you can't see it. The people of God have always been a people of waiting. If you look for it, you will find this theme all over the place in the Bible. Abraham waited for the son of promise for decades before Isaac was born. Joseph waited in slavery and then in prison for God to raise him up. 
The people of Israel waited for 400 years in bondage in Egypt. Moses waited for 40 years as a shepherd before God raised him up to deliver Israel. David, after he had been anointed king, had to wait for years running around hiding in the wilderness before he actually became king. The people of Israel waited in exile in Babylon for 70 years for God to bring them home. Are we waiting as a church today? We've been waiting for 2,000 years and counting for Jesus to come back. And in all of this, God has been working. He is working in the seasons of waiting in our lives. I was so delighted when I saw we sang that song written from Psalm 130, one of my favorites. I love Psalm 130. This is what it says in verses five and six. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. When he says watchmen for the morning, any of y'all work night shift? <laughs> you wait for the morning, right? So that you're off and you can go and you can get some sleep. More than we even wait for that moment, he says, I wait for the Lord. Let me encourage you that waiting on the Lord is always purposeful. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, when you wait on the Lord in prayer, you are not wasting your time. You are investing it. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that his purposes will be accomplished. So let me ask you, what is it that you're waiting for this morning? What is it that makes you think, God, why are you taking so long to answer this prayer? Maybe for some of you, it's work-related. There's a job you've been praying for, a promotion you've been praying for. You're like, God, what's taking so long? Maybe you're single and, and you're longing that God would bring you a relationship or a spouse. And you're like, Lord, what's taking so long? Maybe your desire is to have a child and you're waiting on the Lord and you're, you're praying for that and he's not brought that to pass. Maybe it's a desire for healing, whether it be physical healing or some sort of mental health struggle. Maybe like the apostle Paul, there is a thorn in the flesh from Satan to buffet you. Maybe it's a temptation or a trial or a sin in your life that you're wrestling with and you're waiting on the Lord to take that temptation away. In all of these situations and in many more, let me encourage you that God is working in the waiting. You're not waiting on God to start working. He is already working. And even if you can't see it, he is using this season to conform you to the image of his son. So what do we do while we wait? We trust, we pray, and we get to work. We trust that God's purposes are always good. We pray and we seek him and we follow his will. But next, God is at work in our courage to act. God is at work in our courage to act. When the time had finally come, these four months are up and he's standing before the king, he had to have the courage to act. And as we saw in the text, Nehemiah was terrified. He was absolutely terrified, exceedingly, abundantly afraid. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been so afraid that you felt like you couldn't speak? Ever, you have to say something. You, you know the moment of truth has come and you feel this tightness in your chest. You feel your throat closing up and you feel like it takes all of your willpower and all of your strength just to force the words out. I've been there. Maybe that's how Nehemiah was in this moment. I like to imagine that before the king, it took every ounce of willpower in him just to make the words come out. Maybe he spoke with a trembling voice and a pounding heart. Let me ask you a question. Does that fear make Nehemiah a coward? Just the opposite. 
I believe this was the most courageous moment of his life. And here's why. Courage is not about the complete absence of fear. Courage is about the faith to trust God and to do what he has called us to do regardless of how we feel. He's saying, Lord, I am terrified in this moment, but I trust you and I'm gonna open my mouth and I'm going to do what you have called me to do. We have to remember in these moments where God has called us to do something and we're wrestling with fear, that the Lord is the one who gives us the strength in that moment to do what he's called us to do. As he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit inside of us gives us this power and this love and this self-control to do what God has called us to do. Let me ask you, is there something that the Lord is calling you to do and you're letting fear hold you back today? Is there a step of obedience that God is calling you to take that brings fear to your mind and heart when you think about it? If you can't think of one, I have one for you. How's that reach three card coming last week? You guys remember that? We wrote the names of three people that we wanna share the gospel with. Nothing will bring that feeling to our hearts and minds quicker for Christians than evangelism. It's fearful, it's embarrassing, it's awkward sometimes to have that conversation about Christ. That's just one example of many. There could be many things that God is calling you to do and, and you're afraid. Let me encourage you. In those moments, pray and ask the Lord for strength and then step out of the boat. Step out of your comfort zone. Follow the Lord and what he has called you to do. The next way that God is at work is in our preparation for the mission. In our preparation for the mission. This will come as something that's really refreshing to my like type A control freak planning types. I believe that God works in our preparation. I think we often assume that when God works, it always has to be spontaneous. But I think that Nehemiah was well planned out, well prepared, and God honored that. God's at work in the preparation, in the details. Think about it. He knew before he even talked to the king, everything he needed from the letters to the governors, to all the supplies that he needed, to the number of places that he was going to build. When he gets to Jerusalem, he spends three days gathering intel on a scouting mission, going around and looking and assessing the situation. There is a place in our lives for careful preparation and planning as followers of Christ. As it says in Proverbs 21, five, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. There is wisdom and planning. Now to be sure, God is sovereign. And at the end of the day, his will is what will come to pass. To give you another proverb, 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We plan carefully, yet God is sovereign. Both are true. Why does this matter for us as followers of Christ and the mission that God has given us? Well, think about the old adage. It says, failing to plan is planning to fail. It's a reality in our lives. If we don't plan for something, we don't prepare ahead of time, it's either not gonna get done or it's not gonna get done well. That's true in a lot of areas in our life and it is absolutely true in our spiritual lives. If we are not intentional and prepared about our walk with the Lord, it's just not gonna happen. Trying to grow spiritually without this plan is like building a house without a blueprint. It's like starting a diet without a plan. If we're not intentional about spending time with the Lord daily, if we're not intentional about being a part of a local church, it's not gonna just happen. 
It's something we have to be intentional about. You know, at Coastal, we have developed a carefully thought through plan and strategy to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ, right? We connect to God in corporate worship. We grow in small groups. We serve together in a ministry and a mission, and we multiply by making disciples for the advancement of the gospel. Are you a part of that plan? I wanna leave you with one more point this morning, and that's our persistence amid opposition. The last thing we see is that God is at work in our persistence, our refusal to quit, even when opposition comes. We were introduced to Sanballat and Tobiah this week. We're gonna learn more about them in the weeks to come. But for now, I just want to note that as followers of Christ, you and I can and should expect opposition. There are enemies to our faith. The Bible teaches us that there are three enemies to our faith. The first is called the world, the world. The world is the system of unbelief that pervades unbelieving humanity. The world are the lies, the worldview of our culture that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's the world. The next enemy is the flesh. This is the internal enemy that we have, our sin nature that causes us to desire the things that God has said are sinful and not to desire the things that God has called us to. The last enemy is the evil one or Satan how him and his demons are the ones who attack us and try to keep us from this mission that God has given us. As it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want you to notice this. I I looked at commentaries and, and sermons on this text and far too often we preach this text and we say things like, who are the Tobias and Sanballats in your life? And what we mean by that are people. Let me tell you something. People are never the enemy. People are the mission. People are not the enemy. People are the mission. The opposition that we face as followers of Christ are the world, the flesh, and the devil that try to keep us from accomplishing this mission that the Lord has given us. We can and we should expect that. So what do we do? We follow Nehemiah's example and we don't let it become a distraction. We don't let it cause division. We don't let it intimidate us into quitting, but we continue moving forward because God is the one who has called us to do this. God is the one who has authorized our mission. So as we close, I want to leave you with one takeaway. I know there's two on your bulletin, but we're already running a little low on time. So you got to listen to the first sermon for like the unabridged version. Uh, Listen, that second takeaway, with this, I'll invite up the worship and prayer teams. I want to ask you this question. Are you a part of the mission that God has given to us? Are you a part of the mission that God has given to us? Nehemiah was given this mission to go and to build Jerusalem. We have been given this mission to partner with God in building his kingdom. They were called to build the walls by grabbing the bricks and doing everything that they needed to be prepared to do the physical construction labor. You and I have been called to partner with God in building his church through proclaiming the gospel, through proclaiming that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh that he died for our sins on the cross, that he bodily rose from the grave three days later, and that when we turn from our sins, when we trust in Christ, receiving him into our life, we will be saved. This is the mission that we have been commanded to carry out by our King. In Matthew chapter 28, 
when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, that is our mission, to go and to reach this world for Christ. And God has strategically placed us here in Gloucester County in this strategic location at this time. And it's not an accident that God has put us here. It's not an accident that God has brought you here. He has given us this mission to bring this good news of the gospel to this county and beyond. Are you a part of that? Doesn't your heart long for that? Long to see this county transformed. Long to see people come to know Jesus. As we talked about a little bit ago with Echo, long to see families restored and made whole that have been broken by the consequences of sin in this broken world. Don't you long for that? Let me encourage you with this and we'll close here. We have this mission. At this point, Nehemiah, he's working towards seeing it fulfilled, but he knew because of God's promise that it would be fulfilled. Church, let me assure you, this mission that God has given us will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. This great commission will be carried out because Jesus has promised that it would. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, do you believe that this morning? That Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. It's true. This commission that he's given us to take the gospel to the nations, it will be fulfilled because Jesus promised it. Therefore, even when we face opposition, even when we face trials, we can stand firm and say, we are here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus has said he will build his church. He has authorized this mission. We have a letter from the king saying, go make disciples. I invite you to be a part of that with us as we develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We worship you. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work in our lives, even when we can't see it. You're at work in the waiting. Lord, you're at work in giving us the courage to act. You're at work in helping us plan carefully and wisely. You're at work in giving us the endurance and the strength when we face opposition to continue to serve you. So Father, I ask that you would help us. Help us to boldly and wisely pursue this mission that you've given us of making disciples for the glory of Christ. God, we love you and praise you. Bless us as we go today. In Jesus' name, amen.